Rabbi Tarragon needs no introduction. The only thing I want to do is thank the sponsors, uh, Barbara and Simcha uh, Hoffman, in memory of the Shloshim of Zelot Ben Nachum, and the Weeping family, uh, in memory of Mark's father, Svi Ben Mordechai. The Shir should be an Eli for the Nishamas. I'm Rabbi Adler. I thought Rabbi Adler was here, but. Rabbi Adler. Okay, he's changing positions. He's now shortstop. <laughs> um, I often think to myself that the resurgence of Talmud Torah over the last 200 years is one of the signs of our gula. We're looking for omens or, or indicators that history has turned, that history has recalibrated, and the sheer volume and interest in Talmud Torah. Who would have thought that on Sunday morning there would be 40 people after davening congregating to study Torah 20, 30 years ago? Certainly unheard of. But it's only not just the volume of Torah, but the new methodologies that have excited us all, that have empowered us all to learn Torah in, in refreshed fashion and to convert it not just into an intellectual experience, but into a, a deeply spiritual one. And I think most of the people in this room, I assume, have been beneficiaries of the Brisker Derech and the proprietors of the Brisker Derech, from Reb Chaim, his Talmidim. Of course, many people in this room learn with the Tamide Tamidim of Reb Chaim, Reb Aaron, as well as the great revival of Tanakh learning that has spurred such interest in Eretz Yisrael. And Baruch Hashem is starting to worm its way back to America in certain schools and others in other environments less so, but certainly Kol HaTorah Nishma Be'atzeinu. And that Kol HaTorah has been transmitted back to, or, or is radiating to many different countries. But doubt for the layman is integrity for the scholar. And scholars always doubt themselves and question themselves. And three generations down in the Brisker Derech and maybe the second generation of the Tanakh revival, I think it's healthy to ask, how have these methodologies affected the experience of Talmud Torah? How have they changed and how have they altered? And what are the challenges of learning Torah in a Brisker style, studying Tanakh as it's described in a literalist, macroanalytic fashion, what types of challenges do these provide, not intellectually, but for our experience and to retain the, the notion of Talmud Torah Kinegat Kula? Most of my comments will be directed towards the study of Gemara. That's my primary field of interest and, and involvement. I'll, I'll discuss briefly what I, my observations about Tanakh. Obviously, none of them are meant to be harshly critical or one-sided, but with the premise that we all appreciate and endorse these methodologies, what are the challenges that we face? Every revolution is merely a mask under cover of which a different revolution advances. And sometimes our eyes detect the external revolution, but there's an internal danger that sometimes advances and we're not sufficiently aware. I have to apologize again. These sources were prepared on the road, so feel free to, if you have a pen, to write down the numbers as I did. If not, I'll just try to cite them, but they're not enumerated. But source number two, on the first page, taken from the Nefesh Achayim, of course, quoting liberally from the Zohar, he describes Torah Lashma classically as Torah studied not for spiritual experience, not for clinging to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as many of the contemporary Hasidim assumed, but just to study HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah, Ki Hu Yisbarach, Viritzono, line number two, Chadhu, famous line from the Zohar, HaKadosh Baruch Hu V'yaraisa Chadu. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah is the closest approximation of his infinite essence in human terms. Yet we look at Shas, and Shas presents itself 
as an endless and sometimes seemingly random list of details. Detail, detail, detail. How much you pay if the animal gores this fashion. How you divide the article of clothing when it's being contested to by dual litigants. Can a woman be married, midinare, by delivering money to some friend? To the outsiders, they seem picayune. They seem arbitrary, artificial, conjured, irrelevant. Baba Makama, Baba Masiya, Baba Maisa. It just seems so, so irrelevant, so silly, so Talmudic. The Talmudic scholars pointing their fingers and engaged in mental gymnastics. Of course, to the insider, we know that all these data points are hieroglyphs. Each data point is a code to some larger understanding. It's a portal through which we can access larger ideas. So if a woman can't be married through Chalipin, what does this tell us about marriage? Or for that matter, what does this teach us about Chalipin? Or if two people are jointly disputing an article of clothing, Shaimuk and Mikalis, when I'm really exploring a case, which, quite frankly, never happened, because Gemara Babansiyah of Zion speaks about them not holding the beggar, but grabbing the sisters, Fisi de Kakrishta. What we're really describing is how to map ownership and how to zone conflicted ownership. And it's a portal, it's a code. And we want to try to induce those larger ideas from the details which Shas presents. The Gemara speaks about a basis in Olda beyond Shabbos. The Gemara is exploring the flow of adjacent days of Kedusha, whether those two Kedushas merge into one, and Shabbos and Yantav have one Kedusha. Hence, the egg would be Aser, because it's one day, or the two Kedushas that are just abutting rather than integrating. So, as insiders, we know that every single data pit, every single detail is a hieroglyph. And we also know that earlier on in our tradition, in our Masorah, they knew Torah so well that these ideas were intuitive, they were instinctive. When Abai and Rava walked into the room and spun a question, everyone in the room knew they weren't discussing the particular question, but the larger logic which underlay it. It was in their blood. When I described this to 18-year-olds, I described Chazal's finger snappers. So let's say I walk into a room of Giants fans and I, I don't know, recite um, Odell Beckham. Immediately, 50, 60 plays come flashing through your mind and start to analyze his game versus other wide receivers' games. And is he a good downfield blocker? What types of catches he makes? How does he play? Without necessarily requiring segmented analysis of each play because it's in our blood. And Chazal's retention of Torah was so deep and so instinctive these were just codes. Taimochs and Metalis, everyone in the room knew that let's map Bailas. Motsamechaver Lavaraya, is it Araya? Is it Is it a status quo? What happens when there's a contesting? What happens if the coin grabs? Everyone knew that these were just details from which larger models and larger concepts can be induced. And at certain points of the Masara, as the retention of Torah became less potent, this instinctive sense was lost. And there was an attempt and a need to reformulate the process in an overt fashion by providing the tools and the schematization of that which had been instinctive and automatic and natural. 
And probably the, the first brisker, I don't like to call it revolution because it's all revivalism. Brisker isn't revolutionizing. It's merely reviving a conversation and a process which was instinctive. But you see this very clearly in Tosvos. In the Balea Tosvos, in the 13th and 14th century, people had lost the art of reading Shas holistically. They were reading one particular page. Of course, it wasn't our pagination. Our pagination is the Vilna Shas pagination. Whatever pages they had, they were staring down a Sergian Gitrin and a Sergian Bavmitsia, and they were not sufficiently cross-referencing that topic with its cousins, which is with its parallels. So sometimes the Gemara cross-references itself, but oftentimes it doesn't, but we feel that there are these natural cross-links. So people were reading it, I don't want to say myopically, but there was a shrinking of the horizons of study. They were staring down that Gemara. And Tosfos, the Balea Tosfos wanted to remind us that Shas is a network system of integrated logic, and everything has to be read and appreciated contextually. And Tosfos demanded that we read it holistically, and he came up with a terminology to coerce us to read it in an organic fashion. It's called V'im Tomar, V'ha. 80% of Tosfos begin with our Gemara, V'im Tomar. It's just a trophy. It's just a way of introducing us. It's a question and answer. It's a mechanism. It's not asking a question. It's forcing us to read Kedushin alongside of us. And notice the point of conflict and discrepancy, and obviously it can't be discrepancy because the logic is consistent, so therefore. And that more or less set the model for most of the Rishonim, and Tosfus' strategy was more Kimta-based to make technical adjustments, because Tosfus assumed that the contextual reading would allow a particular text to be flexed. That was legitimate. I, I find a lot of students are very troubled by Tosfus or Kimta. It's textually responsible. Correct, but it's contextually integrated. If you read a particular text, it may not make sense. You have to reconcile two Gemaras. Then, and when Chazal were speaking, they were speaking holistically and laterally. They weren't just writing one page. They were. And some of the other Rishonim articulated other approaches, most notably the Ramban and his base Medrash. It seems they were more categorically dividing, not necessarily by articulating the categories, but by issuing parameters for, to help us determine the different categories. But it's clear that the Tosfos revolution was reinstating a process that had been instinctive to induce <coughs> concepts, large concepts. How does HaKadosh Baruch Hu define marriage? How does HaKadosh Baruch Hu define culpability? Watching, guarding, custodianship, contracts, agriculture, architecture, Shabbos, Yom Tov, Kedusha. Taking all these details, all these random data chips, collecting them, Detecting their similarity, clustering them, and inducing large models of Akadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon. Then something odd happened between the 14th century and the emergence of Reb Chaim. There was a bit of a shrinking of that field of vision. I'm sure the Pnei Yoshua could easily, easily spit out these ideas and concepts. But his writing became much more micro-tuning. You don't see the concepts and the categories and the definitions. I was take side roads. Instead of traveling down Route 4 and 195 to get to, he's on Queen Anne Road or he's on, I don't know, T-neck that well. Some small little alcove trying to determine whether to make the turn a little bit to the left. But it's all based on a certain expectation and concept and became less apparent and, and the 
mechanism and the approach of Tosos became dominant questions and answers, but Tosos is not really about questions and answers. The questions and the answers are just the, the pretext. There's just the entree point. Tosos' real glory is to get us to read Sugios in parallel and to see Shas as topical, not just as pagination. And at some point, that became lost again. And into this void, Reb Chaim entered. And Reb Chaim is clearly in sharply defined categories. And in Reb Chaim, one thing is very obvious. The questions and answers don't matter. It's clearly, clearly just a problem. That's why most of his conversation starts with Ramam and the Rivet. He's not attacking Gemaros and asking questions. He's looking for dualities to reflect double categories. We all know, of course, that when we speak of categories and power, it's not one category, because we're binary. We can only imagine one category. Kodesh Baruch Hu is multifaceted, and it's all categories. For us, it's day and not night. For Hashem, it's day and night together. So it's not one or the other, but both. Kodesh Baruch Hu and I told Moshe that it's Tameh and it's Tahor, and our minds can't imagine that, but they're both MS. They're both true. And in Reb Chaim, it's obvious that it's just a prompt for him to write basically essays. He's writing essays, trying to categorize Shas. And the Rambam and the Ravid is, they're, they're willing collaborators because the Rambam is so organized and because the Ravid is such a wonderful fall man for the Rambam because he's always arguing, so there's other voices in the room. It's really not about crisis resolution, resolving this question and that kind of, as it wasn't in Tosis. That's not Tosis, it's not... It's not dowsing brush fires. Tosos is reading holistically, and is the trope is Vim Tomar. Compare these two Gemars. And that's why you see in the post Reb Chaim era the severing from questions. So Rabbi Yosef Engel writes a Sefer, he doesn't begin with a question. When he writes a Sefer, Asvin Deraisa, he says, How do you understand Truba? And he just lists all of his Navkaminos on the Lekachtov. Rayado can imagine. Testify better than anyone in this room. When you heard the Rav give Shear, was it a question and answer experience? I have questions. I'll, I'll ask five questions in the Sugya and hit the home run shot to solve them all, or it's building. Only the yard section. Introduce the yard section. Five, six questions. List answer. But my question is, and I was thinking about this last night, even at the yard site Shear, did you get the sense that it was the questions, or that was just the Entree. They, he really had these ideas in mind. The questions were set up, so he really. And then you have the ability to transcend narrow questions. And when Rev. Lichtenstein writes to say for Kunjus Dina de Garmi, you're not answering a question. It's a question. Two people in history have written Svarim on Dina de Garmi, the Ramban and Ravar. And that takes a panoramic grand sense of the topic of Abhinamazik and how much force and velocity is and direct application renders it garmi and culpable, and how much is indirect and lack of force rendering it grama. So that, Brisk was not a revolution. Brisk was articulating, providing terminology for that which had been instinctive and natural in the days of Abayin Rava. I think there was a tipping point in the, in the medieval period. I think Baleatoso sensed that there was a shrinking of the field of vision. And they reintroduced that form of thought which dominated the Rishonim. But then there was a lot of microtuning, in particular because of the Shulchan Arach. People were very, that was a paradigm shifter. People stopped learning Gemara. Does anyone know the most famous Sefer written in the 17th century? One Shas? Great Svarm of the 17th century, the Shach. 
Where to say for the 17th century on Shas, as far as I know, it's the Kikayon de Yona. I think I have it, but by, but by accident. Because everyone was dominated by the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch leads to a natural, you're not even working off of the Gemara's text. You will return to the text. The Shach returns to the text, the returns to the text, but the launching pad is not the text of the Gemara. The launching pad is Shulchan Aruch. These are paradigm shifters, just like the Rambam's composition shifted the needle and switched the paradigm. People started writing Svarim on the Rambam. So that's just a brief as- assessment of mm-hmm. how we arrived at the Brisker Derech. Now, what are the benefits of the Brisker Derech? Why are we so enamored with it? Why has it captured our, the world, the yeshiva world, to uh, say 80%, if not more, of the classic yeshiva world at some level is studying Brisk Torah? It may not be as pedagogically elaborate as the shirim we heard from the Rav and Rav Aaron, but point for point, answer by answer, interaction by interaction, it's a Brisker categorical response. I think the brisk derech is valuable for two and a half reasons. The primary reason, of course, is I alluded to before. And this is an educator I find, and I'm uh, preaching to uh, the masters. I think this is Rabbi Adler Sheet, his well-known sheet. In order for young men and women, and any, to appreciate Torah as the grand, majestic Devar Hashem, it has to be seen in large-scale models rather than random arbitrary data points. Imagine if I wanted to share with you the beauty of Michelangelo. And I enter the Sistine Chapel, or if you're possible, you can't enter the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> Ask someone to enter the Sistine Chapel for you. And you climbed up to the roof, and when the tour guide wasn't watching, you ch- chipped off a, a little chip of blue paint. You put it in your pocket, and you came back to Tina, and said, this is Michelangelo's beauty. It'd be laughable. It's a, it's a paint chip. But in the perspective of the entire fresco, of the entire beauty, of the entire artwork of Michelangelo, it's magnificent. It's breathtaking. Tara's data bits. Try convincing someone, this is Devar Hashem, where the Shosha Nagach HaSapara, when it gores twice, and the third goring is not a Bar Chiyuva based on the Tassas and Baba Kama, whether you pay Chasinets and he'll look at you like you're... But when you start connecting those data bits, and how does an animal transform from Tam to Muad, and why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu create allowances for this type of Nezek, and how do we define culpability, or how do we structure, I just delivered a lot of Bechinos to the boys at MTA and Baba Kamas, that's what I'm how do you create a society in which on the one hand you establish culpability, but you also allow productivity in industry, and that's really the Gemara's drama in Baba Kama, if every time your animal damages in the you're obligated, and no one will own animals. And there'll be no milk, be no wool, there'll be no industry, no transportation. So what type of world does a Kodesh Baruch Hu envision? If I spend five years collecting 200,000 data points in Mesechus Kedushin, I'd understand how to install a marriage, and I'd have a better sense of Hashem's Ratzon of marriage. And if I then spent five years studying how to dismantle a marriage and collected 200,000 data points of Gittin and the Surda, and another five years studying the betrayal of marriage, known as Mesecha Sota, another five years describing surrogate marriage, Yivamos, and another five years describing the contractual elements of marriage, Mesecha Sotos. I can collect all these millions of data bits and the concepts that they yield, and then question what is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon regarding marriage in a grounded fashion, not a speculative fashion, not speculating about what Hashem wants for me as a spouse, but grounded scientific information to help me understand Ratzon Hashem. And some topics are less condensed and less neatly packaged. If you wanted to understand Hashem's Ratzon about architecture, 
So you'd have to call some information from Shabbos, and you'd have to call some information from Sukkah, and some information from Erevin, and some from Olas, and some from Kilayim, and some in space, and roofs, and areas, and, and then you'd understand how Kodesh Baruch Hu envisions space, and construction, and habitat, and and if we really want to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu peering out at us from behind the Gemara, then it has to be through the concepts, not through these random details. I remember, I was going to say, one spoke, it was so cute, he said, the reason he loves learning Gemara is because it's so disorganized and random, he feels he has to redeem it from its disorder and its chaos. I think he even used the word chivalrous. I'm chivalrous about Shas. As if he was a knight in shining armor who had to redeem the damsel in distress locked in the castle. But there is a sense that Shas has to be, for us downstream, it's not as instinctive, has to be organized. Number two, I think the second empowering element of this type of learning is not just to see it as a divine word, but to understand its relevance to our world. Since, just since I quoted several sources, a very famous Rashi in Mishpatim. Rashi in Mishpatim quotes the Pasuk in Shmuel. Shmuel is source number five on the first sheet. So, Mishal HaKadmoni literally means, we'll talk about Tanakh a little bit later, so it literally means, as the ancients used to say these parables. Ancient people, it was a cultural parable. But Rashi, Mishpatim, cites this Pasuk in Shmuel, and he says, Mishal HaKadmoni, source six, Hiya Torah. Shumashal Shal HaKadosh Baruch Why is the Torah considered a mashal? Torah is a shira, Torah is halacha. What are, what are the terminology and the qualifiers we apply to Torah? Why is Torah called a mashal? Well, the predicate, or the premise of a mushal, a fable, is that our world exhibits symmetry, and that patterns that exist in one sphere are reproducible in other spheres. And therefore, example, famous parable, famous Aesop's fable, sour grapes. If the fox, after it can't grab the grapes, consoles itself that the grapes are probably sour, then that type of thinking and psychology and release from responsibility makes sense in the human world. So we can borrow from the animal world, transplant it to the human world. That's, that's a, the premise of a fable or a parable, so that we can detect symmetry in the very systems of our world. Obviously, as believers, we believe HaKadosh Baruch will create a symmetrical world. If we study physics, we can extrapolate to other areas. If we study... So the concept of a mashal is that it provides a blueprint or a template to draw ideas, relationships, and transplant them to other facets or areas of our life. And Torah is the ultimate mashal. We believe that every single line and every single concept in Torah can indeed instruct us about how to lead our lives and how to understand our world. And so Torah is the ultimate mashal. But Torah can only be the ultimate mashal if it's articulated as a concept, not as a random string of details. If I want Torah, it's very hard for me to translate Torah into a mashal if I'm just looking at two lines in the Tosfos that solve some micro-contradiction between a Gemara in Yevamas and a Gemara in Kulin. But if I collect that con- resolution and I juxtapose it to five other concepts and I build the notion of whatever topic Tosis is discussing, then I have a concept, whether it's architecture, Kedusha, Mako. mentioned before, Rav Lechensin's last Sefer was a Sefer about Kedusha. Where do we even start? Where, where do you even start? It's not a Sogya. You're not learning a Gemara. You're not learning a, a Tosfos. You're conceiving of a concept in a Kaddish Baruch whose realm called Kedusha as it applies to objects, people, places, and time. And you're picking those data bits and you're assembling them into a larger model about what is a Kaddish Baruch Hu's definition of Kedusha, of transcendent or holiness. 
So I think the second opportunity is not just to see the majesty of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but to apply Torah to our world. The third, but it's really half, because it depends on how you study Brisker Lundus. I think most of the people in this room have been exposed to Brisker Lundus in a very personal fashion. Many of us are Tamina of the Rav, Tamina of Avaran, and we were encouraged to essentially mimic the process of the Achronim, to read the Rishonim, develop our model, read the Rashi, read the Tosis, read the Ramban. If you got into a car and traveled to Lakewood, they'd also be learning Brisker Lundus, but it'd be a very different style. It'd be what's called Yeshiva Shered. Over the last 120 years, 150, 60 years, the Taminim of Reb Chaim have created a corpus of brisker discourse. And just walk and follow that trail. Rebbe Chanan and the Stipler and the Briskerav and the more modern day. And, and that's why they only learn certain areas of Shaz, only those areas that have been paved through Yeshiva Sharet, because they're not empowered to apply the tools to virgin territory. But for those of us who practice brisker lambdas in a proactive form, it becomes a very personal experience. You're not just receiving Torah. You're not just osmotically. I believe that if I had enough time in life and I just read, 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 then through osmosis, I would understand the system. I imagine if you went to the Tells High School, where supposedly the boys learned 500 blot gemara in high school, without any methodology, there's an intuitive osmotic sense of understanding the logic and the flow. It's like any area in life that we immerse in. But for us, I feel that there's a personalization of the sugga. It becomes, a, it becomes not just something you've read and listened to and received, but it's yours. It's saying, Chalkeinu Besar Secha. I think those of us who've tasted this know what I'm referring to. It's an experience that's difficult to convey, but if you've sensed it, you know what I'm referring to. When you've moved mountains and you've seen your, not to the exclusion of other approaches in the sugya, but you feel as if you own the sugya and you've applied your signature and, and, and it's not something distant from you. It's a very, very deeply seated, if I could borrow perhaps from the world of Hasidus, because I'll talk about Kabbalah a bit later, when the Tanya describes three different forms of intellectual activity, Chachma, Bina, and Das. So Chachma is the first flash of intellectual curiosity and Bina is analysis and Das is deep internalization and deep assimilation, not just knowledge, but how do you convert something into visceral elemental part of whom you are. And the sugyas that we have traversed personally become very deeply, deeply attached to who we are and to our personalities. And I think that brisk has allowed that. So this was supposed to be a, a challenge of the brisker derech, but first we have to understand how the brisker derech emerged and how it's impacted our lives. I'd like to discuss four challenges. One is how this Torah is viewed, the sweep of Torah. How does brisk, I think, maybe shrink Torah in a way that's sometimes challenging and provocative? Number two, the mechanics. What are the challenges about the mechanics we apply? Number three, I think probably the most important one is attitudinally. How does it set our attitude about Torah in general? Not just the way Torah is defined, but how we interact experientially with Torah. And finally, the role of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the learning experience with someone called Siyat HaTashmai. So number one, the, the sweep of Torah. Brisk sets out to conquer Torah. That's what we're here. We're trying to impose an overlay, order to chaos, create a system out of details. We're Greeks, trying to build the cosmos. Of course, not broader cosmos, but the cosmos and the planets internal to the world of Torah. 
there's an implicit statement that, of course, we disagree, but sometimes can overcome us. The Torah can be contained. The Torah can be organized. And that's what makes us so gratified when we study Brisk Torah, that we've approached a world that seems chaotic and overwhelming, and we've lent order, and we've tamed it. We've systematized it. We've organized it. We now have these third or fourth generation. What's that safer called? I don't have it. But Kovetz Chakiros. What's that big fat safer? Kovetz Chakiros. Right. Essentially, there's this encyclopedia of categories, and it's very helpful, but it's very misleading because it's not the way you learn top down. And it reminds me to a degree of the great debate between the Shulchan Aruch and the Yantra Shlomo. The Shulchan Aruch suggested a different method for institutionalizing Talmud Torah. It wasn't analytical, but it was more psaac oriented A two-to-one majority, the Rosh, the Thor, Rosh, the Rosh, the Rambam. And he referred to the Sefer Shulchan Aruch, organized, available, accessible, and the Shlomo Luria strongly disagreed. Yamsha Shlomo, and his primary, two, two or three disagreements. First of all, I felt it was a little too sparty, tainted. But the second aspect of his disagreement wasn't cultural, it was epistemological, intellectually. That's how you see Torah. Torah can be tamed, Torah can be fenced in, Torah can be systematized. It's, it's a yam. It's a yam. And he named the Sefer Yam Shoshlama. So there's a vastness to Torah which sometimes escapes us because we're in control mode. We, we're, we're trying to rein in this superhuman force of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Ratzon and overlay systemic schematization. Sometimes our view of Torah can become ironically a little shrunken. It's, it's, it's a bit of an irony because we're dealing with such larger concepts. We have a better sense of it being Devar Hashem, I think, than those who just study details, details, because we see it as large-scale concepts. But at a certain point, that premise that we can impose order and human, humanize Torah, I think, can become a little bit troubling. The second one is the mechanics. Um, there are two different, two different ways to read sacred texts. The traditional way to read a sacred text is the reverential reading, submissive. You submit your intellect, your creativity, to the moral authority latent in the text. It's reverential reading, compliant reading, you could call it obedient reading. Brisker Lambdas challenges us to be contentious readers confrontational readers, creative readers. For me to truly understand Telsvos, I have to defeat Telsvos in order to understand his logic and thereby differ from it. I can't just accept it. If I accept it, I won't be able to fully appreciate it. That's why I think the great danger of reading too many Acheronim when you're young is because you become, they're better at it than you are, and then you'll become enslaved to their approach to the study. At this point, I can read a Pnei Oshua, I can read a Kivager, and essentially wrestle with it and say, well, this is his approach because of this assumption and that assumption and this Gemara. But if you pull out this assumption, then some other approach will emerge. The Gemara talks about source number one, Rabbi Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef was Rabbi's Rebbe. So Rabbi Yosef, who was blind, had a great retention, strong mind. Rabbi was referred to as Okir Harim. He wasn't Sinai. The sense of Okir Harim speaks of scintillating intellect, but also about almost dismantling mountains. You're, you're dismantling Sinai. The metaphors here are very powerful. You're not Sinai, you're Okirhar. It's almost, you're not subversive, because the end point is not to, to sabotage, but to understand. 
And that's a very, very important space. It's very, I think we have a lot of creative readers in our world, and we have a lot of reverential readers in our world. And I, I think the challenge is to become creative readers, challenging readers, for the larger purpose of reverence and for the larger purpose of understanding Tulsa's. And I know that in my share, as best as I can, I try to convey this duality that I will not let Tulsa's get by with any leaps, with any assumptions without challenging them, not because I'm opposing Tulsa's, it's because I dearly, dearly value Tulsa's. And the only way I could excavate every nugget of logic that Tulsa's assumes is by challenging every word he says to better understand it. But sometimes it can come across as a little bit contentious. I think maybe even arrogant. I think that accusation has been laid. Well, Tussa says this, and I say this, and Kivega says this, but I hold differently. And of course, to the degree that it trickles down to the world of Psach, then it's not just arrogant, but it's also irresponsible and dangerous to create halachic deviance. So it's not just the way we view the sweep of Torah, but the type of reading we apply to the text. <coughs> Rather than the submissive receiving of ideas, this overlaying our concepts on the text and the, the manner of overlaying those concepts requires challenging and, and contentious reading, I think it can lead to, to a lack of reverence. The third issue, which to me is probably the largest issue, is not the mechanics, how we read a Tosfos, and not our theoretical view of Torah, is it the Yam Shoshlam or is it a Shulchan Arach, but it's just what are we learning? What, what, experientially. Forget the mechanics. Let's say it weren't logical. Let's say it were experimental. Forget the fact that we have to apply our logic and read it one way or another. Forget the fact that we'd have to articulate the vastness of Torah attitudinally, viscerally. Torah describes Tehillim. Again, this is on the second page. I apologize about the sources. It's the right after the, the non-digital. Alisa la maram shavisa shevi. Moshe Rabbeinu ascended to Shemayim and granted Torah. I'll see this as a reference to Moshe Rabbeinu basically hijacking Torah. Torah belongs elsewhere. Torah is in a different realm, in a different domain. Medrash describes the Malachim warring with Moshe Rabbeinu. How dare you snatch Torah for human, frail individuals? A very strident image. When we study Torah, do we have that sense that it's, it's ours? Is our study, is our discipline, or have the sense that we're treading or trespassing even into some other realm, into some higher place, in a different area? Probably, probably the strongest expression of this is how the Rav viewed Berchus Classically, Berchus would either be a Berchus HaShavach, to praise Hashem for the experience of Torah, or be a Berchus Mitzvah, for the Mitzvah of Talmud Torah. The Rav claimed that Berchus is, is a Matya. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so the Moran Yud Aleph, you get Hishkin Lishanos. The premise of the Rav statement of Bechsamatir is essentially Lashem Aretzim Law. Just like this cup of coffee is not mine, after authorized drinking it by reciting a bracha, Torah is not mine. Torah belongs to Kaddish Baruch. I'm entering a different realm beyond human experience, and to a degree, it's not just that I'm entering it and I'm symbolically acknowledging that it's part of a different realm by my bracha. But I'm also, I treat it with, with um, gravitas. When I, after I recite a bracha on this coffee, it's my coffee. But even after I recite a bracha, I'm still in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's world and in his mind and in his will. 
So, for example, the Gemara and Megillah describes, this is on the first page, source number seven, Mimos Moshad, Rebbe Gamliel, Lo Hayu Lamedim Torah El Imagine that. For hundreds of thousands of years, they would not sit while you study Torah. How could you sit leisurely and relax when you're studying Torah? That's after Baruch Torah. So even after the Baruch, it's not a cup of coffee. It's the Dvar Hashem, the eternal word of the Bona Shalom, and you're a visitor. As a visitor, you exhibit deference and respect, and you stand at attention. At some point, pragmatism overcame attitudinalism, and, and pragmatically, it was difficult for people to learn, so that's that. At an earlier stage, Ezra, when he returns from Bavel, remember Ezra is struggling not just with the potential lapse of Talmud Torah, but of course the scourge of intermarriage. Ezra establishes the Tzatkana, that about carries us in Talmud Torah. So imagine every time a married man wants to study Torah, he's got to visit the mikvah. So again, it acts as a hedge against some of the intermarriage he was dealing with, but primarily it creates a, a moment of Talmud Torah. It creates a mini Yom Kippur. You're entering the Kodesh. And brisk and brisker analysis, it, it, it's a bit of an irony. We're trying to say HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but there's so much human authorship and much human control and human command. I wonder if that somehow erodes or, or, or fades, that feeling of standing in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and, and studying his Torah. I think Chazal were aware of this. I think it's a healthy tension. I think the primary expression in Chazal emerges in a Gemara and Kiddushin based on the Pasuk in Tehillim, source number 10. It's the second to last source on the first page. There's a latent tension in the way Torah is presented in the beginning of Tehillim. So it's referred to as the divine, eternal Torah Hashem. And then the Pasuk flips. It's his Torah. So make up your mind. Is it Torah Hashem or Torah So? Torah So here is the antecedent, the Ish. Ish. So it's an important question, conceptually. Its halachic manifestation is a machlokis in the Gemara in Kiddushin between Rabbi Yosef, I mentioned before, and um, Rava. Can a Rav be mochel in his cover? Rabbi Yosef felt that a Rav can be mochel in his cover, but Rava disagreed. Torah delay? Is it your Torah? Is it your cover? You're just an icon. You're just a representative. So that's a halachic expression. Can a rabbi mochel in his kavod? But what's really at stake is, is this Torah Hashem or Torah Sadam? I've studied, I've learned, I've applied, but it's, it's a different realm. It it's, belongs to the Rabbani Shalom. It's not mine. It's property of this. The t-shirts in the 70s, property of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I'm just a visitor. I'm just a spectator. I think in recent times, if we fast forward after the days of Chazal, another expression became not mechilas kavod. That's really halacha question. But can you enjoy learning? Joy is a very, very deep human emotion. It's the deepest human emotion. And potentially, if I enjoy learning, then I'm marrying Torah to the deepest level of my identity. But how could you enjoy learning Torah? It's frivolous. It's disrespectful. It should be a solemn experience. So we all know this as the question, of course, of the Avnei Nezer and the Gleital, but it predates. In the Rebbeinu Avram Inahar, source number 13 on the second sheet, Gemara says that if you're Madir Hana from someone, 
We're talking before your mother and I. We're talking before our mother and us. Your mother enough from someone. If I can't get enough from you, I can still use your articles for mitzvahs because mitzvahs all behind us. Then I can take your lulav. I can use your maybe not your tefillin because just some tactile pleasure. But I can't use your safer for learning. If I'm also to get enough from you, I can't use what do you mean, Mrs. Lavlahanis Nitner? So he says, Avo Mitzvah Sleeman, so in the second part, Shu Inyan Sir Halevi, Dios Emes, Ikert Sivuhu Kidelitsayer Emes Ulhis Aneg, Vele Honos, Bimada, Lissamech, Levavo Vesichlo, Kidachsev, Pekurde Ajem Yisarim, Misam Chelev, Shem Samchim Libra Al Karko, Hikoch Loshaik, the name of the Mitzvah Talmud, Delonitin Lahanos. Lifting your lulav is not considered halachic hanah. But tar is meant to be hanah, fundamentally, categorically. Therefore, I can't use your safer to provide hanah since I'm mudr hanah. And of course, the entire backlash to which the Igle Tal was responding in the 19th century. So it's not just a halacha question about mechilas kavod. It's existential. What type of frame of mind? When I'm sitting in front of a gemara, should I be overwhelmed with suffusive joy? Or should I feel like sitting on the base of mikdash, treading on hallowed ground? And I think brisk moves the needle a little bit. I think sometimes I feel a little less of that gravitas because I'm exerting my own signature on the sugya rather than entering Hashem's realm. And I think it's especially true, and I'll just re- talk about this very briefly, because we're rationalists. We don't often process Torah in cosmological terms, in Kabbalistic terms. So when Chaim wrote a sefer and he described Torah Source number 16 on the second page towards the bottom, the Torah inhabits the upper spheres, the four worlds, through which HaKadosh Baruch Hu's infinite presence trickles down to our world, the world of Atzilos and Yetzira and Asiya and all this famous Torah inhabits an even higher realm, the Sodom Malbush, where essentially all of reality stems from Torah. Every part of this world is emanating from Torah's positioning and the cosmic pecking order. And we of us think about that often. So we're already dealing with a rationalist, shrunken, human version of Torah. And sometimes the, the, the gravitas or the reverence may be challenging when we are so actively imposing human order rather than letting shas flow through us in all of its random, chaotic, untamed fury. The final issue about brisker learning a little bit related, but still a little different. The Parshas Kitisas, I forget I mentioned it. Torah writes, Vayitena Moshe, famous Mishnah, famous Medrash, source number 16, on the second page, four from the bottom, Vayitena Moshe, Kichalasol, Daberito, Bar Sinai, Shnei Luchos, Eidus. Ksuvim Betz, Belokim. So famous Medrash, it's on the next page. Moshe Rabbeinu effectively turns to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and says, I haven't ate or drank for 24, uh, 40 days. Kol mem yom shasa Moshe, it's in the last page of the fourth to last source. Hayalom mitar v'shochech. Amar Yerbanu ha'olam yeshli mem yom ve'eni yodea davar. Masa Kaddish Baruch Hu. Mishahishlam mem yom nasan la Kaddish Baruch Hu satara matana shenemar v'yitein al Moshe. Okay, so this is a very, very extreme case where Moshe forgets everything and Hashem delivers everything mimid bar matana. But I think we've all felt in our lives, in our Talmud Torah, the hand of our Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Siyat HaDashmaya, we... we bump up against this brick wall that we just can't solve and we just try and endeavor and understand and somehow we throw mountains apart. And I know there's this guiding force that Baruch Hu is Torah is compared to Aish, I think, for that reason. Aish is, uh, is combustion. It's not, obviously it's not a mineral material. For combustion to occur, you need three elements. Fuel, energy, 
and oxygen. For Torah to be studied, you need three elements, fuel, energy, and invisible oxygen. So the fuel is the Torah, the Torah that's being consumed. The fuel is the effort of a human being. And the hidden oxygen that creates that combination is the Kodesh Baruch And of course, until Am Yisrael had the Torah, you didn't have combustion, which is why the Sneh wasn't burning. Because Am Yisrael wasn't in the equation. They were saying, one day you'll get to Harsina, there'll be real fire here. Right now, there's not yet full fire because Am Yisrael and, and Torah haven't really connected. So Torah is age because it's a three-pronged process. I apply myself to the material of Torah, and then there's this hidden element that oxidizes the process, that Kodesh Baruch Hu. And do we think of a Kodesh Baruch Hu? Do we thank a Kodesh Baruch Hu? I know I thank a Kodesh Baruch Hu. We all do for our health, for our parnasah, for, for Am Yisrael, for Eretz Yisrael, for Shalayim. We say, I've really got that sugya. That made sense to me. Thank you. Thank you for letting me understand something which I may have been withheld from without your assistance. Again, the more passive I render myself, the easier it is to assume that Kodesh Baruch was delivering information. Emotion has basically become passive, not pacified, but it's become completely passive because it's so overwhelming. So for Moshe, it's obvious that the Torah is being delivered. The more mechanical we are, the harder it is to carve out that space for Siyat and Nishmaya. So those are the five issues I feel that they're not a strong support of the brisket Tarek, obviously, but we have to consider. Number one, the sweep of Torah, the untamed nature of Torah, the vastness of Torah. As much as we try, I know myself, I don't, I don't really know Torah that well, and I, I don't expand, I don't spread my wings. I'm very comfortable just operating within the little parts of Torah that I can make sense of, and I work hard at it, and I, but there are vast, vast oceans of Torah that I haven't even begun to explore properly. And that's not the way I work. My constitution is very different. I, I set out my territory and I try to conquer it as best as I can and create order. But sometimes I wonder, when will I ever get to Erechen? When will I ever get to Uxin? When will I ever get to... And we've sometimes become too comfortable in these small little alcoves of Torah rather than swimming in the ocean of Torah. The mechanics, the way we read texts, we have to be challenged, aggressive readers because we revere these people. In some cases, it can become cocky and it can suggest uh, equal, equal value or, or equal station. Number three, of course, the, the attitude. The attitude that it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world and that we're entering a, a different space, but it can't be too different because then it doesn't become integral. And the fourth issue is the role of the forces of Seattle Shemaya. Since it's like just a few moments about the Tanakh, here I would call it a revolution. It's not, it's not a revival in the way that Brisk is. Here it's definitely a revolution. I'll stop in about five, six minutes. I know that we're a bit late for time, but just since there was on the docket. Chazal and the Mefarshim were by and large deconstructions. They deconstructed the text down to its minute details, the extra letter, the double language, the extra phrase. Probably the Gemara that I think best captures Chazal's way of reading Tanakh, source number 19, the last page, Kibbutz Osav, Tal Talim, Pasuk and Shira Shirin, his hairs, locks are, are very, very flowing. Amrav Chizda, Amr Marukva, Nalameh, Shiesh, Lidrosh, Alkol, Kotz, Vakotz, Tile, Tilim, Shahalachas. I didn't quote the end of the Pasuk, one of the top yells. Tile, Tilim, take a look at every little Kutza Shuliud. Imagine that. Imagine deconstructing the entire Tanakh and reading not words, but letters, and not letters, but fragments of letters. And that tradition more or less dominated the Mepharshim and Rishodim. And now all of a sudden, over the last 150 years, not all of a sudden, there were obviously, and people in this room can, can attest to that better than I can, there were some Rishodim who had that inclination to read 
large swaths of text, and like that, Barbanel, um, others. But now, all of a sudden, there's been a shift. And we're not just micro deconstructioners, deconstructionists, but we're macro readers. We read volumes and pages and storylines and narratives and compare Sefer Yonah to Sefer Eov and Elio to Pinchas and parallel texts in Mishpat about Evid Ivri to the corresponding text of Evid Ivri and Parshas Re'eh. And, and I think it's fascinating and liberating. First of all, it's important just at a logistical standpoint because, let's face it, Gemara will always be elitist. So the pool of people who study Gemara will always be small and the pool of people who study Tanakh. Every year, literally, there are 10,000 studiers at our Tanakh session in Grosh. I know 10,000 people, but 10,000 human beings who walk through the door, many of them be PF offenders. But can, you imagine, can you imagine if we started a Yomi Yon Falandas? We may get 10, maybe 100. So just the pool of people who have been engaged in Torah study through Tanakh, is, especially in Eretz Yisrael, simply amazing to see thousands and thousands of people rallying around Torah. So just instrumentally, it's been a tremendous, tremendous development. But I think it's more than just instrumental, because I think it has attuned us to certain messages of Tanakh, which just weren't relevant for thousands of years and are less, less, ex, ex, less able to be drawn from microtextual reading, for example, redemptive narratives. We're now living through an era of redemption, and although we don't point specific psukim and assume that they're targeting specific events, you know, so, oh, that pasuk in Zechariah means that Trump will be the president. It's not in our constitution. There's a general sense that by reading Zechariah, by reading Yeshaya, general sense of where we're heading, confidence, general guidelines. Again, it's a very, very delicate balance. My son was in the army in the Givati unit, and he served with a group from Elon Moret. That's called the Kav Yeshiva. So one of the Rabbanim came for Shabbos and gave the Torah to the entire group. So I asked my son, who goes to Yerucham, said, how did you find Shabbos? He said, it was very interesting, Abba. It was a very different way of saying Torah. So I said, I'll give you an example. He said, well, he told me that Trump is Mordechai, and uh, this one's Achashverosh, and the five days, this is going to happen, everybody has an attack. And I explained to him that that's not the way we operate. But in the same token, I think many of us, and I think many of us got that from Ravami Tal, that, that, that Tanakh is now very relevant in our lives, and living through prophecy. And in a general sense, Ravami Tal would quote Sukkim and, and help us navigate the changing realities in our world. I think national issues of sovereignty, politics, socioeconomics, the judicial system. If this sense is by reading Tanakh large and whole, not by reading the extra Pasuk and the extra Rashi, but what type of framework did Dabha Malach install? How is society operating? What are the challenges and the cross-dynamics of the political system? And so some of these topics are, are uh, agriculture. Uh, it's hard to really read Shir Hashir if you don't know the topography. Because the topography is part of the metaphor. He's looking at mountains and he's facing east. And it's not just an abstract metaphor about a female body. But Israel and female bodies start to merge. And he's looking at sheep coming from particular points. And I always chuckle to myself. <laughs> Living in Gresh when I read Rashi in Parsha Shlach, Alubanegev, Rashi has to prove that, that Hebron is in the south of Yushalayim. There's a whole series of proofs. And he's sitting in France, and he doesn't have any. I look out my window. I know where Hebron is. I know it's a mountainous region. I just look out my window. So, so without agriculture, and, and you can't draw agriculture and topography, I don't mean agriculture, I mean topography, and you can't draw topography and landscapes from a Pasuk and a Rashi. So I think it's opened our minds not just to parallel ideas, but to newfound ideas that have been granted significant, timely relevance. 
But I think there are two issues, really briefly, just to put them on. First of all, I think there's a question of personnel. The second issue is, of course, the severance from Chazal. If we really are reading Tanakh independent of Chazal, because Chazal didn't process in macro reads, then who are the purveyors of this newfound Torah information? So at its worst, I mean, it's worst in terms of the information, but in terms of the religious experience, a person can study Tanakh in the university, not even be from, or conceivably not even be Jewish. Now, of course, that information is valuable. Anyone Tamin, and many Tanakh teachers are, are greatly enriched by it, but in as much as it's Torah, sometimes these people begin to occupy a moral position in our lives and a religious role in our lives. It's less, it's less dangerous with secular Jews, although it's dangerous as well. A lot of the students who study in university, well, he's a Tanakh professor, so he's a purveyor of Torah, so he's a moral, moral voice, a moral authority. I sense it more with religious Tanakh teachers who are fine people and, and fine B'nai Torah, but, but I wonder, because Tanakh is becoming so popular, some of these personas are starting to become almost rabbinic-like personalities without the rabbinic knowledge. And when someone has been through Shas, we have a sense that that person has been exposed to the full brunt of Amasara. They've spent hours with the Rav and Abaya. They've spent hours with the Rambam and the Raivet. They've spent hours with the Turandes Yosef. They've spent hours with the Mishnah Bura. This is someone who has traversed our Masora and at some level carries the moral authority, the religious authority. I open the Tanakh and I read the Pesach. I'm a trained reader. It's not meant in a discriminatory fashion. It's more the public response, not that the people choose to learn Tanakh. I remember a looking scene once there was a Rothschild scholarship, which was available in the 80s. It was the first major scholarship grant. And boys could apply from all over the spectrum of yeshiva. So Rav Aaron was on the panel. You had to learn three mesechtos and write articles. But the rule was when a boy from your yeshiva applied, you had to recuse yourself from the panel. So a boy from several of the Gush boys got it. Matthew Francis got it. A couple of boys got it. But one boy, a boy who was, now is a professor of Tanakh, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't necessarily skilled in Gemara. So Ravaran told me he wrote this long letter of recommendation. He wasn't on the panels, but he could write a letter of recommendation. Uh, um, encouraging the panel to consider his candidacy and invoking the Radak as an example. The Radak was a colleague of the Rabbeinu Tam, general era. Had he chosen to excel in Gemara, we'd have another balatosis. But Baruch Hashem, he entered the world of Tanakh. And now we're, 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 we're greatly enhanced by his contributions. So I asked Ravard a few weeks later, did he get the scholarship? He said, no, he didn't get it. Because <laughs> it was for Farbstein. It was generally dominated by yeshiva's panel. So I think as a community, we're enhanced. But I sometimes witness the, the excitement of the Tanakh shirim that take place in Alon Shvut, not necessarily in yeshiva. And the people delivering the shirim, who are fine people, is, I'm not assailing their character. But I think society is responsible. These are rabbis, and these are rabbinic figures, and, and it may be true. Tanakh is an exclusion, the fact that they excel in Tanakh, but it's not sufficient. And I think there's, there's part of our crisis of rabbinic leadership in Eretz Yisrael is that we've, we've somehow smudged or we've distorted some of those guidelines and bylines of... And that's why I think that people who are tweeners, someone like Rav Bazak, or like even Rav Yol ben who their hands in both, I feel more comfortable assigning positions of authority and moral inspiration rather than people who, I think legitimately, are, are providing Tanakh instruction. 
And of course, the, the, the more popular one of this all ends. What? I think you're right. I, I'm not such a student, so I haven't really read her work. But it, it's, it's a fair question. But, but it's, it's an unfair question because there's really two questions because it combines the female component. Because one is the Tanakh as opposed to the Shas, the other is her role in introducing female studies. It's really a, a conflation of two questions, but it's an important question. When you say Tanakh, are you including safe voracious that was studied by the same people? Uh, oh, well, that's my, my, my last question. Govainayim is not just who's teaching, but. But safe voracious. We don't have enough time to discriminate between Sefer Bereshis, but it's a legitimate question about Yonah, and it's even more legitimate about Sefer Bereshis, because Sefer Bereshis is theological, and Sefer Yonah is more or less moral and historical. It's not as and it's theological because it's tshuva, but Sefer Shmuel. Brisk didn't sever from Chazal. Brisk basically reformulated the logical patterns of Chazal, so essentially you're still within the world of Chazal. Today's modern Gova, it's called Govei at eye level, is essentially walking away from the world of Chazal, at best to complement, to provide readings that Chazal just fell out of or weren't popular, to get a broader understanding of the text. Um, it's a challenge not just about severing from Chazal, but of course trivializing biblical characters, biblical figures, reading. Because I have to read Avram as a human being without providing midrashic overlays that hagiographically inflate his persona, because I have to read the text. But then at what point do I treat Avram as my kid brother or my next door neighbor? So that's the entire conversation of Govei Nayim. Again, Tanakh is not primarily my field. I don't teach Tanakh that often. But I sense that there's, there's some real questions that aren't being asked in this entire Tanakh process, just as there are real questions. <coughs> as someone who's devoted my life to the Brisker Derech, to always make sure that we calibrate between, I guess the best way to conclude this year, between two psukim. One pasuk, the last two sources, Moshe Rabbeinu says, "Ki a mitzvah hazos, Asher Anochi mitzav chayom." According to many Rishonim, he's referring to Talmud Torah. Lo niflesim mcha, lo rechoka, lo meevrayam, lo b'shemayim. It's yours. Grab it. Study it. Then David Melch says, "But don't forget, Galainai v'abita niflos mitarasecha." It's niflos. Hashem, help me. Open my eyes. Help me acquire that knowledge. So Moshe feels lonerless. David reminds us, I never beat in the And I think, again, there's no, no great chidushim here. I don't have a, necessarily a, a prescription. It's just a mindset and an awareness that as we proceed and, and we personalize, internalize Talmud Torah and, and create order out of chaos, to remind ourselves that Torah lies beyond human can and human experience. Have a great day.